the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to drill down today on what's happening with the massive fraud committed by the campaigns of five Michigan GOP gubernatorial candidates. What do their disqualifications this week mean for the field and for the race in the fall? Then we're going to talk with DJ Jeff Mills, a headliner at the upcoming Movement Techno Festival in downtown Detroit, about the city and the great music that all started here. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. As always, thanks for tuning in. Some people are calling it a fraudulent scandal that is, quote, unprecedented in Michigan political history. Five GOP gubernatorial candidates are accused by the State Bureau of Elections of having their campaigns forge signatures that would give them access to the gubernatorial ballot. Now, the campaigns themselves say they had nothing to do with this, that they hired people who went out and broke the law on their own. But that doesn't really matter from a legal perspective. Fake signatures on ballots or or, uh, fake signatures on petitions for uh, the ballot are not legal and can mean that you get disqualified from being able to run. That was what the Board of Canvassers decided yesterday, that Detroit Police Chief James Craig and four others had forged enough signatures to keep them from the primary ballot later this year. But we still don't understand or fully know what happened here or what it means. What does it say about our politics? What does it say about the Republican Party? What does it say about these candidates who each say they should be in charge of state government? Now, I'll remind you also that several of these candidates who were disqualified were among the loudest voices casting aspersion in November of 2020 on Detroit voters as we went to the polls in the presidential election and cast our ballots. They said there was massive fraud during those elections, and they say that those votes should have been disqualified. Now, there's not a shred of evidence that's been presented since then to prove that Detroiters did anything wrong during the 2020 elections. And yet, these candidates still say that the election didn't turn out the way it should have, that those votes shouldn't have counted. Now they stand accused of fraud on a much larger scale and with much more serious consequence. It is beyond thick irony. Here to talk about what is going on in the GOP, what is going on in the governor's race, 
and where we will end up by the time we get to the primaries in August is Jonathan Osting. He covers Michigan politics for Bridge, Michigan, and has been all over this story from the beginning. Jonathan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Last time you and I talked about the possibility of these signatures, we were only talking about James Craig. Now we have four others who are potentially, at least, in violation of campaign rules. And the Board of Canvassers met yesterday to talk about it. Talk about where we are. What happened? Yeah. So, um, as you mentioned, the Bureau of Elections took a deeper dive into the signatures since you and I talked last and uh, uncovered a lot more fraudulent signatures for a lot more candidates um, than anybody had any, any idea about. They they uncovered... Um, they estimate 68,000 forged signatures on, on nominating petitions for 10 different candidates, and that includes the five Republican candidates for governor. So yesterday, the Board of State Canvassers met. This is a bipartisan board. It's two Republicans and two Democrats, and they basically have to certify candidates for the ballot. And uh, they did not do so for um, the five gubernatorial candidates. However, it was a split vote. Um, the Democratic canvassers both voted to keep the candidates off the ballot. Uh, the Republican canvassers um, both voted to put them on the ballot. And the argument comes down to uh, not whether all the these um, signatures are actually fraudulent or whether these candidates submitted fraudulent signatures, but whether the Michigan Bureau of Elections should have double-checked every one of these 68,000 signatures uh, against versions uh, that are stored in what's called the qualified voter file, which is like mm -hmm. a state database of you know signatures from voters when they register for a driver's license, for instance. So that was the big debate yesterday. But the end result, regardless of that 2-2 vote, is these candidates were not certified for the ballot. And um, if they choose, they're going to have to go to court in a hurry if they still want to make the ballot. Yeah. So we still don't know fully, I guess, how this happened, how uh, candidates for governor ended up hiring people who engaged in this kind of fraud. And, and that's what it is. It is it is fraud to make up signatures or to, to forge signatures uh, on a petition, um, uh, what what broke down here, and what are the what are the campaigns saying about what happened to them? Yeah, well, I, I think we discussed this before, Stephen, but there was a um, real demand for circulators this year. You could say that was unprecedented as well, because there are like a dozen petition drives out there for ballot initiatives. There were ten Republican gubernatorial candidates all trying to collect signatures at the same time. And the end result was these um, signature firms, who are sometimes paid to collect signatures, had a hard time finding enough workers to actually do all this stuff. And it seems at least one of them, maybe more, uh, turned to some people who uh, were were sort of you know known to not to, to cut corners on this sort of thing. These these uh, circulators. Now, um, it turns out the state suggests there were as many as thirty six circulators who were submitting fraudulent signatures, um, and the state linked some of them to a firm called First Choice Consulting, which is based in Warren. Uh, it's led by a guy who, in fact, was convicted of petition fraud in Virginia back in 2011, um, so doesn't necessarily have a pristine track record here. 
Now, both the James uh, Craig James campaign and Perry Johnson, sort of the two highest profile gubernatorial candidates, have suggested that they did not hire this firm directly. But the thing about petition drives is uh, they can become very wild. You can mm-hmm. you can hire one company who then hires a subcontractor, and maybe even that company hires a subcontractor. So uh, you're right. We still don't know exactly how these um, fraudulent circulators came to be working for the campaigns directly, but somebody down that line uh, of contractors and subcontractors decided to hire these folks, even though, as I mentioned, some consultants I've talked to on the Republican side has said some of these circulators were well-known. They were on do-not-hire lists for some people, for some signature-gathering firms, but apparently not all of them. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the result here is, yeah, like you said, an unprecedented uh, signature forgery scandal. Yeah. I'm talking with Jonathan Osting. He uh, covers politics and state government for... Bridge, Michigan. Uh, He's been writing about the potential fraud among GOP gubernatorial candidates. Yesterday, uh, we saw the board of canvassers deadlock two to two, uh, which means that uh, five of uh, those gubernatorial candidates will not have access to the ballot. They needed at least uh, a majority of that board to be able uh, to overcome these errors on on these petitions. Um, We're talking about what happens next and what this means for the GOP, what it means for the gubernatorial race in the fall, uh, where we are with Michigan politics, uh, with this kind of massive fraud taking place among major candidates uh, for one of the major parties. We want to hear from you uh, as well during the conversation. What do you make of these fraudulent signatures among GOP candidates. Are you surprised by what we're seeing and learning? Especially want to hear from folks who are Republicans or vote for Republicans or just identify uh, as conservatives. Are you disappointed that uh, this is affecting potential candidates for governor, people who you might actually cast a ballot for this fall? Uh, If so, what does it tell you about their ability to manage this, the entirety of state government, which is uh, what the governor does. Uh, does this suggest a lack of preparation? Uh, does this suggest a kind of sloppiness uh, that uh, that would scare you uh, if you were deciding among candidates? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can work you into the conversation. Before we get to uh, uh, listeners, uh, Jonathan, I want to—I do want to talk about what what happened at the board of canvassers yesterday. That's another extraordinary wrinkle in this story. From from my point of view, uh, you had the two canvassers who voted to to not certify uh, Detroit's election results because they thought there was fraud against any evidence uh, that that suggested that they had none um, also vote to put these five Republican gubernatorial hopefuls on the ballot in the face of massive fraud uh, evidence that that the Bureau of Elections says they've never seen the likes of before uh, it, it strikes me as a as an extreme example of partisanship. Uh, the likes of which, again, we haven't really seen so much in this part of government. The, the the board of canvassers is supposed to be a neutral body. It's got partisans on it, but it's not supposed to 
to, to make decisions according to one party or another. It's supposed to uphold the rule of law. Uh, talk about this vote yesterday. Yeah, so uh, you're right that one of the canvassers um, was involved in that vote on uh, certifying the 2020 election. That would be Norm Trinkle. He's the chairman now. Um, He abstained from voting to certify in 2020. (laughs) Um, He chose to just sit it out, uh, you know, which certainly um, if if another canvasser would have done the same thing, it means Michigan's election would have been certified. So Mm -hmm. it was a uh, unusual and and, uh controversial move at the time. Uh, the, the other canvasser on the board now is Tony Daunt. He's a Republican, and he's new. He replaced um, a, a, right. a, a, another canvasser who stepped down. And Tony Daunt, you know, he's sensitive to this. He, Tony Daunt resigned from the Michigan Republican Party State Central Committee recently because he thinks the party is uh, still perpetuating Trump's lies about the 2020 election. He does not believe those lies, and he was um, pretty upset by what happened in 2020. So he's not, you know, the the diehard Trump loyalist, you, you, you might think uh, here, but mm-hmm. he certainly um, did uh, seem to be persuaded by the arguments from Republican attorneys who, again, uh, aren't saying there wasn't fraud. What they're saying is the state should have counted, should have double-checked every single one of those signatures uh, turned in by these accused circulators, because maybe some of them, you know, a handful were legitimate. And, uh, I mean, Tony Daunt said, you know, out loud on multiple occasions, my gut tells me these probably are fraudulent, but I cannot base these important decisions on assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's the line he drew. I mean, I will note that canvassers, um, often make decisions on much larger petition drives for initiatives based on samples of signatures uh, with as few as 500 being reviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly there's a lack of consistency here on how they're treating these candidate petitions versus much larger um, initiative petitions where there's never an expectation the state is going to going to, you know, spend significant time reviewing every single signature, because to do so uh, would be incredibly time intensive, costly, um, and take a lot of staff manpower that the Bureau really doesn't have. So, yeah, yeah, it was a pretty extraordinary day yesterday, uh, no doubt. And, And you have heard and seen some Republicans stand up and say, this is not okay. This is not the way we want this party to conduct itself, that that um, that the rule of law should be applied evenly and fairly, and that uh, when Republicans or Republican hopefuls um, uh, do things that uh, run afoul of those, of those rules, uh, they ought to suffer the same consequences as everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been uh, a number of people um, saying, you know, that, uh, like you said, um, these candidates made a mistake. Uh, Ultimately, the buck stops with them. Um, You know, most campaigns, I think we talked about this before, Stephen, most campaigns do try and vet signatures themselves uh, to make sure they don't end up, uh, you know, putting in uh, fake or fraudulent signatures or otherwise invalid signatures. And it doesn't appear to have happened, at least not on a large scale this time around. So uh, you had folks like Stu Sandler, a former executive of the Michigan Republican Party, um, say yesterday that these candidates ran garbage petition drives and should be held accountable for doing so. Um, but instead, a couple canvassers uh, voted 
voted to give them a pass. Uh, it wasn't enough. Um, as I mentioned, this is definitely heading to court now. The candidates uh, have the option to, uh, to, to go to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, their choice, um, and ask to try and get judges or justices to order canvassers to certify them for the ballot. That has to happen very quickly, though. It's going to be a wild week or so here. The state wants to finalize its candidate list for the ballot by June 3, uh, because by June 18, they're legally obligated to have the ballots printed and sent out to uh, um, overseas and military voters. So um, not a lot of time here for candidates to make their case in court, but there's certainly, uh, James Craig has already indicated he's going to try. Perry Johnson's campaign has uh, suggested the same. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Sean in East Point. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Happy Memorial Day. I give it to you for keeping your composure. I have lost mine. My stomach is so upset right now. I'm so ashamed and embarrassed, especially of James Craig. He should just duck out. The Republican Party wants to control people. You know, this whole forced birth thing. I want to know who's going to prison, when they're going to prison, and how long for doing this fraudulent stuff. Mm. A felon by mistake votes, they get five years in prison. I want to know who and when is going to prison for this. Wow. Uh, Sean, you know, that's a, that, that is a, a very, um, I mean, it's a very visceral reaction to what's happening, and, and it's reflective, I think, of the things that I'm seeing in other places on social media. Um, the double standard, uh, I think, that is being revealed here is really troubling. Uh, the idea that uh, that because uh, these are Republicans, somehow they ought not be held to the same standard as uh, as, as everybody else is something that, uh, that I think we've got to be able to confront and 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 think about, uh, Jonathan. One thing that Sean raised that that I'd love for you to address is the criminality of of this. Is this something that someone could be prosecuted for? Now, I doubt that would be, of course, the the, the candidates themselves or even the people who were running their campaigns. But the folks who orchestrated this fraud, which was pretty large scale and quite intentional. Do they face the possibility of of criminal charge? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, The Bureau of Elections this week actually referred their findings to Attorney General Dana Nessel's office. Um, She had said earlier in the week, once she got that, she, you know, would most likely be conducting a very thorough investigation. Um, The circulators themselves, it's pretty clear under state law that they could definitely be prosecuted. They could face up to five years in prison uh, or uh, fines um, as well for filing these fraudulent petitions. There are, um, you know, statutes as well that suggest that if it is proven that the candidates knew about this or that the campaigns knew about this, they could be held criminally liable as well. Uh, I will make clear that the Bureau of Elections has said they have no evidence to that effect, that that, that any of the candidates actually knew this was going on. Uh, but there are statutes that would, that would punish them if, in fact, uh, that is proven down the line. But certainly, to the question of the circulators, I imagine um, you know many, if they're not already fleeing the state, <laughs> are going to face prosecution in the near future. Hmm. 
Hmm. Again, Sean, appreciate the call and uh, the comments. Let's go to Karen and Macomb. Karen, what's on your mind? Good morning. Um, boy, I'm glad I work remotely so I can call in on a regular basis. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I I really hope that all five of them are not allowed back onto the ballot. I find it very interesting that it's always the Trump supporters crying foul and saying, you know, voter fraud, yet they've engaged in it themselves. Um, I have experience with circulating petitions um, in the past for keeping Michigan wolves safe and also to um, stop any further morning dove hunts. And I can tell you, those petitions are extremely specific in how they need to be filled out. Um, what we did is we went way above and beyond with our signatures because we knew we would probably run into some problems with signatures being thrown out. Um, you can only do so much, you know, of course you're going to ask if people are registered to vote mm -hmm. um, and you watch them very carefully when they, you know, sign the petition. Sometimes they might, you know, go into the next line. You don't want that because then that just ruins the whole sheet. Um, and you can't have abbreviations. So it's extremely specific. Now, we can't do anything like we're we're not going to ask people, you know, can I see your driver's license? Can I see your voter's registration card? You sincerely hope that they're going to be, you know, honest and sincere, that they are a registered voter, um, that they are using the correct address. But again, um, you really need to make sure that you go way above and beyond in getting your signatures so you don't yeah. run into any problem getting yeah. it on the ballot. So, so Karen, um, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And, uh, Jonathan, I've got just uh, about a minute left, but I want to have you address the, uh, how hard it is to do this. This is this is a difficult task to run a campaign, to collect signatures for it, to make sure that they're all great uh, and and not potentially fraudulent and to have the right number. This is it's not just raise your hand and say, hey, I want to be governor. You've got to run a good organization. And that's one of the points that I think emerges from all of this mess. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, to the caller's point, I mean, volunteer circulators, campaigns that are actually able to motivate their supporters to go out and collect signatures themselves, uh, almost always do much better in terms of the validity of the signatures they collect. It's when you have to pay people that you run into these problems because, you know, especially this year, um, the, the petition company that uh, the state has, has linked to some of these fraudulent signatures has told us they were paying $20 a signature this year because uh, they were having trouble recruiting uh, circulators. And that, may, you know, experts I've talked to said that just incentivized uh, people who might have wanted to cut corners to cheat to get a big payday. So, um, yeah, the, the can campaigns like uh, Garrett Soldano, Ryan Kelly, these real grassroots candidates, 
They did very well. They didn't have any signatures challenged. Governor Whitmer, she used all volunteers. Easier to do when you're so well known and have, you know, the power of county parties behind you. But she submitted 30,000 signatures, all collected by volunteers. Not a challenge. No, no accusations of fraud. So, um, it is it is hard, but uh, can't, a lot of candidates have done it over the years. Uh, this year is certainly unusual. Yeah. Okay, Jonathan Osting of Bridge, Michigan, always great to have you here. Lend your expertise to these conversations about uh, state government and politics. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, you. Coming up, we are going to talk about movement, the movement festival this weekend, and techno, its history, its birth in Detroit. Detroit DJ Jeff Mills, who's a headliner at Movement this weekend, is going to join us to talk about it. We want to hear from you about how excited you are about the techno fest here in Detroit and whether you're going downtown. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're the home of America's auto industry and the birthplace of Motown music. There is no question about our impact on the world industrially and culturally. But even as Detroit continues to innovate artistically, internationally there's one sound that is forever linked to our city, and it continues to thrive. Although it is widely associated with Europe, techno music was invented here in Detroit in the early 1980s. Inspired by futurist ideals, a generation of creators in the city used whatever technology they could get their hands on to pioneer a really cutting-edge sound that's made up of growling synths and driving dance beats. In the process, they set into motion one of the most essential music movements of the 20th century. Each year, we commemorate that event here in Detroit in the Electronic Music Festival, which takes place usually over Memorial Day weekend uh, in Hart Plaza in the middle of downtown Detroit. It is such a special weekend. It always feels quite a bit like a reunion in the city, that uh, people from all over come back to kind of remember techno's roots in Detroit. To help us look back on the history of techno, what it means to the city, its impact on the world, and what we can expect this weekend, we've got one of the men who helped this movement thrive. Jeff Mills is an internationally renowned DJ and producer who got his start on the radio in the 1980s in Detroit. This month, he released his latest album titled Mind Control, and he will be headlining the main stage of this year's movement electronic music festival our annual celebration of our roots in techno music you also heard some of jeff's work in the open for this conversation jeff welcome to detroit today hello hello good morning hi how are you it's great to have you here so uh you're going to be headlining the main stage of movement for the first time on monday I just yeah. want to have you talk about what that means for you to be the one who's going to close out the festival as it makes its return after this uh, two-year COVID hiatus that we've all had to endure. You, you've got to be excited. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very it's a very special um, a position to 
you know, to, to play. Um, um, I mean, Detroit um, is really, you know, it's it's really ground zero for um, this this you know this this form of music, and and so many um, artists uh, come from Detroit. It's such a concentrated uh, community of of of, of, of musician and artist um, that uh, to be involved in this festival in any capacity is 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 very special. Yeah. So uh, I want to go back to the 1980s, uh, talk about what you were doing during that decade, but also talk about how it fits into this discovery, this invention that was going on of this really different kind of music. Uh, I, I was a teenager, a young teenager, uh, while while this was all happening. I have some memories of it, but you were right there in the in the thick of it, uh, talk about what was going on and and how all this came to be. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot, uh, really, a lot had to, you know a lot of the sentiment and the feelings about um, not just music but also just just culture in general really had a lot to do with the um, the the ending of this you know the last century and this this momentum building up towards the toward, towards the change of the century. I think and I think. Um, uh, younger people like myself were more sensitive to what was happening around us and really wanted to be part of something, some of us music, some of us art, some of us fashion or dance, or, but to kind of contribute to this momentum of change, I suppose. And techno music was very much the, the form and, and the soundtrack for that, for that change. Yeah. So as I said in the open, this was about making sound with whatever technology you could get your hands on, which is a different form of creating music. Uh, tell us about those first steps into into this genre and what what was driving that creativity, what was driving the right. the sort of innovation what what drove you to, to to think? Hey, this could make a cool sound that I could put into music. Yeah, I was I was pretty much convinced that this was, a, you know, a genre of music that will will be with us in the future because of what we were beginning to do with the sounds or, or what we were normalizing. In other words, you know, um, you know, we were taking bleeps and 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 sounds that you would normally hear. Um, connected to more technical uh, and more um, um, uh, sounds like like the like the opening of an elevator, or, you know, the you know, the bell, you know, the chime of a of a of a of a computer turning on, or uh, and we were we were taking those sounds and actually using them as if they were notes and chords and making and and, and basically normalizing this. Uh, as some connection, a bridge to to future music or or to, to, to a future time, that that started around the mid '80s um, when um, when when the average record had some type of either type of sequence that was uh, um, pointing towards the future or, to, or or the subject of futurism or 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 some type of sound that was what we were hearing more and more in our landscape because technology was becoming more available uh, to, you know, to the average person. Yeah. And, of course, 
the driving beats, the rhythm, had everything to do with with techno from the beginning. And I always figure that has to do with the fact that it's uh, that it's a Detroit uh, invention. That, yeah. that rhythm yeah. and that driving beat. Uh, they they reflect our personality yeah. in an important yeah. way. Yeah, I mean it's the, it's the same it's the, it's the same thing that was ringing in the ear of Barry Gordy. I mean he was thinking about the automobile industry and and the sequence of machines and machinery and it, 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 the same thing happened to Detroit and techno and and Juan Atkins and Derek May and Kevin Sonneson. This idea of repetitious turning out turning out the you know the assembly line. Um, and we had, we adapted that mentality and uh, you know built our our industry of dance music like Barry Gordy and uh, and and this is I I have to you know I'm convinced that this is the reason why it's so su- successful because we we were very much influenced by the success of something else that had happened in in Detroit and another person that so. Um, so it's a it's a formula that we're connected to. We're, we're all we're all connected in that way. I mean, I know that Motown never you, you, you really see Motown and techno music in the same sentence, but we're very closely connected to that uh, um, you know uh, heritage. So yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, DJ Jeff Mills, who is going to be the closing headliner uh, of Movement 2022, which is uh, this upcoming weekend in downtown Detroit. Uh, we're talking about the history of techno, where it comes from here in the city, the influences uh, that it drew from, the influences that it has uh, over all kinds of other music. Um, and we're talking about the festival this weekend. Uh, always such an exciting time here in Detroit. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Tell, call and tell us if you're a fan of techno and uh, why do you like it? Uh, what does it do for you? What's the attraction, I guess, uh, that, that sort of visceral attraction that you might have to techno? Um, why does it matter to you? And why do you think it has such strong roots here in Detroit, especially we would love to hear from folks who are headed downtown uh, this weekend for movement. Uh, are you are you excited to be part of this? Are you uh, looking forward to being able to do it after two years uh, of, of hiatus because of uh, the pandemic? How many times are we thinking about that uh, right now with things that we're finally able to do in person uh, that we hadn't been for so long. Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. <clears throat> That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll include you in the conversation. <clears throat> also call and tell us about your Detroit memories as they relate to techno. I think those of us who grew up here uh, in the 80s and the 90s, uh, our, our youths were, were framed by not only this music, but its development, its spread around the world, its influence uh, on so many other kinds of music. Uh, it's something that I feel like we own, all of us, uh, all of us as Detroiters on just a little a little piece of that. Um, uh, talk about what that means to you. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, you can also go to social media, put, uh, put comments there. Um, so 
I, I want to talk about uh, the 1980s again. Um, the Wizard. You were the Wizard. <laughs> That's so crazy that that uh, that that was you because uh, you know when I was a young teenager, um, that was that was the music we were listening to. As was the music we were listening to while we're trying to go to sleep at night. That was the music we were listening to as we were driving around to parties uh, when I was a little a little older. And again, the 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 role that this new music played. Uh, in that in that time in my life has always had mm-hmm. just this tremendous influence on me. I mean, I can't imagine uh, being a teenager, all the things that I did, the normal teenager things that I did uh, without that soundtrack. Uh, what was what was your inspiration for that show? Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was um, uh, I was very, I was quite I was very young at that at that time, and I had absolutely no experience. I think even with like a you know like a regular job, I mean I, I, I they, they they had hired me and 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 told me that my job is to play any and everything that was happening anywhere, mm-hmm. and basically they just gave me a room and uh, pl- plugged me in and just said okay you know you play as long as you want uh, and, and you know play what you want until this time. Uh, and so I was kind of left basically left on my own um, for for the you know for those for those shows I could I could uh, I, I did my you know I did the programming I, I did the, the 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 you know everything and and so um, so um, there were there were very little compromises back then and it was intense um, if you remember it was it was it was quite intense because um, because I, I could be, I could be, I had the freedom to, 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 um, you know, to create, you know, to make it that way. Um, Mojo, Electronic, Electronic Mojo was, was the competition on the other stations. So <laughs> right. I had to learn really quickly um, uh, and try to, um, well, playing the music wasn't enough at one point, And I had to begin to try to make the music more, concept, play it more conceptually. Um, reasons for why the music should be played. So it's Michael Jackson versus Prince, or it's something. Um, and um, and yeah, I mean, I learned a lot uh, during those days, not just about you know you know music, but just um, you know how it serves the public and uh, how people attach themselves to it, and how um, there can be these windows of influence that you know people can remember in the long-term memory about some things that happened, you know, and, and so, um, so I, 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 um, you know, you know, did that for as long as I could and, and then started making music at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue this conversation with Jeff Mills about techno, about movement, uh, about Detroit and our musical roots. We'll get to you on the phones and social media. Raphael in Detroit, Rachel in Detroit, you'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to social media, to Facebook and to Twitter. Put your comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. That is the music of Jeff Mills, DJ, producer, and artist, headliner of Movement 2022. This is, of course, Detroit Today. 
on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. We're talking about techno uh, in advance of the movement, uh, movement Electronic Music Festival uh, this weekend uh, downtown Detroit. Uh, back live after two years of hiatus because of COVID. And uh, Jeff Mills will be the headliner on Monday, closing out. The festival. Uh, we're talking about the roots of techno right here in the city of Detroit, the influences that inspired it, uh, the things that it has inspired musically all over the world and reflected back here on the city of Detroit and, and our people. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, talk about how uh, how techno plays uh, a role in your life. Uh, are you a fan of techno? Uh, are you someone who's going down to the festival this weekend, and is it something that you look forward to uh, every year? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you in. Let's start today with Raphael in Detroit. Raphael, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Um, first of all, Jeff, you're an absolute legend and a treasure to Detroit. So thank you so much for the work that you do in art. Um, being somebody, you know, who grew up with ADHD um, uh, and struggled with it, I, I, I truly love the fact that techno helped me speak the language of my brain. Um, it was whenever I would listen to it, it was uh, moments where I feel like I could actually hear my own thoughts and focus mm. on who I am as a person um, and everything that I do. And to this day, you know, working from home, uh, I have my sound canceling headphones on, just blasting some really good uh, tech house, you know, or or just good old fashioned Detroit house. And I see, I feel myself, you know, in the moment, being able to just. Uh, focus on what I'm doing, and uh, uh, I just cannot thank you enough for the work that you've done to really build in that in that music culture uh, because it's it's the language that I speak and it's the language mm. that I can actually hear myself uh, uh, be a person. Wow, Raphael, that's I'm really glad you called, and it's not something I would necessarily even have thought of, but but the. The, the way in which techno, because of its structure, I think, would, would help somebody with ADHD is a really powerful idea. Uh, we also have a social media comment that's somewhat simil- similar. Anthony on Twitter says, precision is key. Um, uh, talking about, uh, I think, uh, techno music. Uh, Jeff, uh, talk yeah. about that that precision and that structure and how I guess how you guys came up with that as the backbone for the music and how different it was from sure, what sure. we heard yeah, at the I time. Mean, yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, uh, what what um, you know we're referring to is the idea that um, you know music um, is positioned in a way that it makes you feel more comfortable and more relaxed uh, much quicker. That it's not a it's not a struggle to listen to it. You can expect. Uh, um, that it should be just as refined at, from one point to the next, and so, and so as a result, so as you become more comfortable with it, you become more relaxed, and you you bec- become more uh, um, connected to the music. Um, you 
listen to it to the point that after a while you don't have to listen so so focused on it that it just it, it can become um, more in an indirect way and and you begin to think more about yourself and you know your your you know you you kind of revert back into your own mind and away from the music because because you're so confident that the music is there it's 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 repeating it's it's um it becomes uh, something that's working in parallel with your mind and that and that's the beauty of especially techno and the idea of working with machines uh, that that make the precision so so uh, perfect and so precise that it it uh, it, um, it it in a way it helps us as humans <laughs> as a as a as a as a as a human to want to strive to be that perfect you know to try to play the keyboard in a way so that um, you know I, I can I can translate and relay that type of assurance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, Raphael, really appreciate uh, the call and that that really specific insight that you can uh, lend to the conversation. Let's go next to Rachel in Detroit. Rachel, what's on your mind? Hi, hi. Um, well, I wanted to call and also just reiterate how important techno can be for allowing you to really let loose and explore your own thoughts and emotions in sometimes a three-hour set where you've got this long story that you're going through that you're able to explore caveats. It's, it's like a, it's a meditative state. It's interesting because the music's loud and it can be aggressive, but the story that it tells is cohesive. And in this meditative state, you're allowed to decide where, those, where the excitement and the music, where that takes your personal story. It's not telling you what to think. It's it's guiding you to be able to apply that to what you're thinking. And just some of the things that these crews are doing now, um, really making transformative spaces. I've got to mention interdimensional transmissions, the way that they make transformative spaces so that you can really let go in a, in a calm setting, in an environment that allows you to, to let go in a positive fashion. And um, like what Jeff Mills has done and him performing in Berlin in the early years. Uh, just, <laughs> I appreciate that so much. And it's really interesting that Detroit is, I feel like Detroit as a home for raves. I mean, we were doing this when we were children. I was 16 years old going under the bridge, going to the Packard plant. And we were 16, we were kids doing it then because the people throwing it were kids. Yeah. It's not like that anymore, but it allowed us to be a part of this really special movement that that created this group of renegades and the renegades and and just the renegades that founded this music and it's it's set up in a way where nobody's getting famous in detroit off of detroit's music Mm. everybody's contributing together it's it's just it's such a beautiful thing this Mm. this means so much to me and what jeff mills has done means so much to me and underground resistance and mad mike thanks (laughs) and i just and 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 i won the tickets yesterday for craftwork so thank you oh there you go there you go yeah rachel that's exciting i'm 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 so glad you called and and again shared that enthusiasm for uh not just the music but the experience of the music and i think all of us who who grew up here, especially at a certain time, have those experiences to kind of relate to uh, the music that was being developed and 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 played at that time. Jeff, I, I wonder if, as you guys were were building all of this, were you thinking of 
the young people who you were connecting with? Um, uh, yeah, yes, yeah. of course. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, techno um, is really a genre of the, you know, of the, of the common person. I mean, you know, we're not um, musicians that studied at Juilliard or Interlochen and things like that. I mean, we're not, we're not, we, we are basically, you know, normal, average people, you know, middle class, <laughs> Midwestern, you know, people that are just having visions and dreams about the future and, uh, what's what space is like and 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 it's coming from pure uh, vision and emotion and there you find the depth of space and the darkness uh, in between stars and 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 uh, you know all the, all the colors that you find in the, in the universe I mean you it's it's um, it, it very much it's like science fiction you know it's it's like a science of the you know, techno is really like the science of the average person and just through sound and so it in involves all the aspects of what what science uh of uh, entails so there's research there's there's the uh testing there's um there's uh you know um monitoring there's um communication between um other artists there is um you know there's there's it it uh it works in that fashion and you know you know the you know the Woman, she's 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 right. We 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 do function as a community, and it's mm-hmm. not just in Detroit, but it's actually all over the world. I think um, anyone that's connected to techno music, uh, we are we are closely binded together. Whether you're in England or Japan, or um, so um, I'm uh, I'm not quite sure if it's like that with other genres, but for electronic music, we we are because we I think we all understand that uh, what we're doing together. Um, has a much greater uh, purpose, actually. And yeah. perhaps maybe a lot isn't very easy to recognize and see now. But as time goes on, as the decades kind of, you know, you know come, uh, you, know, you it should make more sense the reason why we're making so much music about planets and stars and, and time travel and, and, and all these things. Um, so, uh, so it's a very exciting time, and I really look forward to coming and playing yeah yeah uh, i think uh, anybody who grew up in the city in the 1980s is uh, apoplectic about the idea of you closing movement <laughs> on, <laughs> on monday sure. uh, yeah. yeah so congratulations on that and and again thank thanks very much for joining us here on detroit today thank you very much yeah. thank you all right that's going to do it for us this week enjoy the weekend go down to movement if you can uh, on monday uh, we are going to have a special recorded conversation about how to dismantle white supremacy by addressing climate change this is 1019 wdetfm detroit's npr station your connection to news music and conversation we'll talk again next tuesday